AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for November 3rd, 2015. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today, we're joined by Rick Huber, and welcome, Rick. You've been on the AT&T Chief Security Office team for a long time, and uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a pleasure to have you here. So yeah, sure. can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Well, I focused, you know, my team is focused mostly on network security, and particularly the packet networks, so mm -hmm. the, you know, the worldwide MPLS and IP and, and so forth. Uh, and some of the things like Ethernet access and ATM and frame relay access, which are also uh, you know, very closely associated with the, uh, the worldwide packet stuff. Right. So you, you're, you're basically distinguishing you know, what might be part of just the enterprise servers and things like that. You're really kind of focused on the routers and the network yeah. equipment itself. Yeah. And it's, and a, it's, it's a discipline in itself. Yeah, and uh, I think we'll be talking later about some of the particular, one of the particular issues that shows up in the, in the IP network. But in general, there are all sorts of interesting things that go on in the IP network, and there are also, and something we also get pulled into, various uh, legal and regulatory obligations in various mm -hmm. parts of the world that, uh, that hit what we do in, the, uh, in packet networking. Providing networking in every country isn't the same. Right. right. <laughs> so they all have their different yeah. roles and making sure that we comply with the roles of the yes. different countries. So, yep. all right, very good. Welcome and uh, I look forward to talking. We're going to be talking about BGP routing and right. some of the good and the bad about that, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> all right, yep. great. Uh, we have Matt Kaiser with us and Matt, you're a regular in the program, so I hope you're doing well. Uh, I'm doing great, <laughs> same as always. Glad to have you here. And online, we have Josh Lackey. Uh, Josh, welcome. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you've been doing lately? Uh, yeah, um, I'm on the security research team, so we try to keep track of what external researchers are doing, and we have a, a, a number of research items of our own. Um, I can't tell you what I've been doing, though. Sorry. <laughs> All right, very good. Welcome to have you with us today. And uh, I guess, like you said, you know, we, we rely on ourselves, the good and the bad, in terms of research, you know, the research into attacks that, uh, that we need to be concerned about, as well as new technology to help protect. So uh, welcome and uh, glad to have you join us today. So first, we're going to go to Matt. And uh, Matt, I guess um, one of the things that's been discussed quite a bit recently, you know, we've had the uh, you know, poodle attacks, a lot of these attempted SSL downgrade attacks, mm -hmm. and there are some mechanisms to protect against that. I'll let you take it from there. <laughs> so it turns out that some of these have some unintended side effects. Right. Uh, so a researcher, Yan Zhu from, from Yahoo, did a presentation at TourCon San Diego recently. And this is a pretty interesting uh, abuse of the technology, uh, HSTS, mm -hmm. or HTTP Strict Transport Security. Now, what that name suggests and means is that a browser typically will attempt to go to whatever you tell it to go to, either an HTTP version of a site or a perhaps an HTTPS version if, if one or the other is available. Right. We really don't really think about one or the other. We just type in the domain name in a way. And it knows, goes right? there because okay. the browser is smart enough. Yep. And in most cases, it'll start trying at the HTTP site, and then you know, the, the site will redirect you to the encrypted version, which is a pretty good idea. 
However, there are cases where you've got um, somebody tampering with the traffic, they may try and force you to go from HTTPS down to HTTP. And in that case, all the traffic that you're sending is in the clear and they can sniff it. Mm -hmm. So what HSTS is supposed to do is to say, if I visit a website and the website has this flag set and it, it supports HTTPS, it'll say, next time you come here, don't even bother asking for HTTP. The browser should go straight to the HTTPS version. So we've already negotiated the most secure mode. Yep. Here and thereafter, we shouldn't have to do any of that other nonsense. Right? Exactly, in case someone tries to do that, and then you can say, hey, something is wrong. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, keeping this information in the browser introduces an interesting little twist where the time it takes for someone to resolve a site that they're aware of versus a site that they're not aware of from a browser standpoint, there's a small time discrepancy in there. And what Yan Zhu found out is that you can use this, if you can force someone's browser to make requests to these sites, mm -hmm. you can tell if they've been there before or not based on that time gap. Mm -hmm. So she put together a, a website that has a whole bunch of popular HSTS sites, and you can watch it load, and it'll tell you exactly where you've been and where you haven't been. And this works even when the browser cache has been cleared, because the information's not stored in the cache, it's stored elsewhere. Right. So there's a very interesting privacy implication to this. At the same time that you're fixing one problem, which is security of your data, you're leaking small amounts of information about where you've been. Yeah, so it's not really a flaw in the protection measure here, it's a kind of a leak in another way. Yeah, it's, we used to call that a covert channel back in the old days. I think, that, I think that's an apt name, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and for folks that may not be familiar, you know, a covert ch channel is just basically some way that data can leak through, so, more typically deliberately, mm -hmm. to try to, you know, modulate something, turn on a device or something like that, and maybe use Morse code to something, send something out. Yep. So uh, this is a case where it's kind of leaking inadvertently. And uh, it sounds like it would be a relatively easy fix. You just put some random delays in there to kind of gobble things up a little bit. I suppose. I mean, you might still be able to do some statistical analysis and figure out that your delays are within some range. But, you know, mm -hmm. there's probably a right way and wrong way. And having read the article only three or four times, I can't say that I know what the right way is. <laughs> okay, well, we'll see if there's any, there are any changes that come about associated with that. Very interesting story. So, Rick, we're going to go to you here. And, you know, last week, Wall Street Journal posted an article, and they kind of talked around the real technical details of this, but they alluded to the fact that BGP's been around for a while. It's got some things that, you know, I guess we'd like to have be a little bit better. And as a result, I mean, I tend to think of it this way. You know, when we talk about the Internet, it's the Internet. It's a place where you can send packets into the wild abyss in a sense, sure. and hopefully they get to the other side. That's really the objective. But uh, how they get there is really kind of a big community effort. So right. I'll let you take it from there and yeah. tell us a little bit about this. Okay, so first of all, yeah, the internet is of course a connection of networks, a connection of you know, internet service providers or ISPs, all hooked together mm -hmm. um, by fairly complicated you know, connections when you, when you consider the scale of the whole world. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have a simpler version of the world that uh, should be up on the screen now. And BGP is the name of a protocol, the Border Gateway Protocol, which is what the ISPs use to tell each other what they can reach and how close they are to it. Mm -hmm. So if we take a look at this picture, we're in a nice state here. The whole network is the same color. There's a website, let's say, called A here that's connected to ISP number one, and everybody else on the network, on the internet, knows that in order to get to, uh, to website A, you have to go to ISP one. Mm -hmm. But now, 
suppose somebody else shows up and starts to say, no, that I am website A. So B now starts saying, I'm website A, not that other guy. Well, B is going to tell its ISP, 7, that it is the, the, the website you're looking for. And it does this by saying, I own this, you know, this is, this is my address, come here for this address. Mm -hmm. And website 7, if it's running BGP, is going to look at this and say, well, I can get to this, that address by going to um, ISP number 4, or I can just go directly to this connection that just showed up and said, here I am. And of course, that's a better route than taking that path through, number, through, through ISP4. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to start sending all traffic to this particular address to B. What's more, I'm going to start telling my peers that I have a very good route to this address. And so now, website 7 is saying, hey, I've got a good route to this address. And it's telling ISP4 that it has a good route to that address. So now ISP4 looks at it and says, well, let's see. I'm one hop away from the address if I go to ISP7. I'm several hops away if I go to 3 or 5. So I'm going to start sending stuff to, to 7. And what's more, I'm going to tell my peers that I have a, a good route to this address. Mm -hmm. So the next step is that uh, ISPs 3 and 5, which are getting a route that's saying, hey, I'm only two hops away from ISP4. And it's also getting, well, 3 is getting a route saying, I'm two hops away from ISP2. and Five is getting her out saying, hey, I'm, I'm pretty close too. I'm only one hop away from, uh, from ISP6. These guys have to try and figure out where they're going to go. And it may be a coin toss, depending on right. some of the parameters that come with, uh, with BGP, because it's, it's not just counting mm -hmm. hops. There's other stuff in there. Well, but in, now, in fact, even within each of these ISPs, it's a, it, it's a complex network in itself. Yeah. And so they may send oh, yeah. some packets right. that way, some packets right. that way. Part, part of ISP5 right. may decide the route to 4 is better, and part may decide that the route to 6 is better. Right. So you know, now we have the, the network very confused. Some people think that B is where the website really is, and some people think that A is where the website really is. But the interesting part of this is that A itself and its ISP, ISP1, don't see this. Because there's nothing telling them that there's somebody hijacking my routes, except if they're looking at their normal traffic and saying, gee, I'm not getting as much traffic as I usually get. Right. Uh, you know, maybe from, from certain parts of the world, it might be able to tell that. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't really know what the problem is. Well, and that would be a pretty complex analysis, yeah. right, to try yeah. to figure that out. But in fact, you know, what, so, but, but this is basically the problem that the Wall Street Journal article was talking about. It's called route, route hijacking. Right. And you're basically saying, hey, I've got a good route to this. Send your traffic to me. Right. Now, yeah. this could be done maliciously, or it could be an accident. Right. Um, you know, somebody just is typing an address. And instead of typing 123, they just type 12. And now, all of a sudden, they're claiming to be somebody that they weren't. And uh, traffic to that, uh, you know, to that address with the one two, with the one two in it is going to mm -hmm. start coming to them from their close neighbors in, in the internet. So, you know, what can you do about this? Well, first thing is you can make sure you have a lot of friends because to track this down, <laughs> you're going to need to talk to a lot of other ISPs and try and figure out what's going on. And that's you know something that definitely right. does happen in uh, in you know, in the real world, there are, there are yeah. all sorts of groups of ISP like Nanog for North America and so forth, mm -hmm. and folks get together there and they make contacts and if they start seeing traffic disappear, they, they start calling their friends and saying, hey, what are you seeing? You know, could, could we have a problem here? Mm -hmm. There are also some uh, companies that 
specialize in getting BGP feeds from all over the network, all over the internet, all over the world. And they can look at things and say, wait a minute, this can't be right, and start raising the alarm. But again, to get it fixed, you've still got to talk to your friends. Mm -hmm. In the well, long, yeah, I guess along, sure. the, uh, along those lines, isn't there sort of a nonprofit initiative around that is to perhaps a, an offshoot of Nanog, uh, the Routemon? There are some there are some things like that, and there are a couple of commercial companies involved, and and, and so forth that are that are just looking for right. for finding bad routes. In and the, that, in the that's a matter of the ISPs actually volunteering yeah. to share route information, so that they, and then you can, it's kind of I guess left to the end user in some cases to figure out what types of analysis are appropriate, right? Yeah, although if the ISPs find out they're getting bad routes, they, they, they tend to work on it. I right, mean, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's in every ISP's interest to have to be able to get the traffic where it's supposed to go. Mm -hmm. Um, but, I mean, you know, I'd just like to also point out, this is not hypothetical. <laughs> there have been a number of uh, cases in, in, in the world, and uh, just a few of them. There was a case in 2008 where Pakistan decided that for, because of some of the things that were on it, they didn't want people going to YouTube. Right. And they blocked it within their country, but they let that block leak out, and they ended up blocking YouTube through you know, large parts of the world. So far as, um, our, as far as we know, that was unintentional. Yeah, right? they, well, it was intentional within Pakistan. Within Pakistan. But they did not intend for it to, to leak out. They weren't trying to keep people from other countries from seeing it. They just distributed their, their, their null route, and it, and, it mm -hmm. and it wasn't supposed to have been distributed. There was a situation in 2010 where China Telecom started announcing 37,000 prefixes that they didn't really have mm -hmm. and not never been entirely clear what happened there. Um, there, there have been lots of articles about it and so forth. Right. Um, now, and they, that was a case where it didn't necessarily terminate the traffic, right? It was kind of. I'm not. I think you may be thinking of the next one on my list, oh, okay, which sorry. is when, which is when a lot of traffic find it found itself in uh, in 2013. A lot of traffic found itself being routed through Iceland and or Belarus. Right. That. The traffic was very carefully delivered where it was supposed to go. It just took a detour. Mm -hmm. And so who knows what was being looked at while it was taking its detour. Right. That's, of course, the, the open question. Um, but uh, you know, nobody knows even if it was anyone in Iceland or Belarus who was, you know, they may just have hijacked a system in one of those places and mm -hmm. had, it re had it announced the route. But traffic was going to odd places that it really shouldn't have gone, but then eventually getting to its destination. Of course, that's even harder to, f to find mm -hmm. because you are getting the traffic, it's just that you have a longer, a longer path. Well, and I think, you know, I think it's important to kind of realize that uh, even in a, an ideal you know, a proper scenario, no mm -hmm. malicious or even accidental uh, route advertisements. There aren't really any rules that say that going the long way around the world isn't the best way to get there. And it particularly, I mean, the whole reason that BGP is used is that if there's a link failure, or if something breaks somewhere, right. there will be a longer path that now becomes the best path. And, and these things change all the time. I yeah. mean, in, in our network, every time we want to work on a link, we cost it out, which mm -hmm. is to say we raise its cost so high that BGP stops thinking it's a good route. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, things go around it. And once there's no traffic on it anymore, we take it down and we fix whatever we have to fix on it. Mm -hmm. it Maybe may a bad line card in a router somewhere or something like that that has to be replaced. And every router, you know, every ISP does that. Right, and so right. it's not unusual for the routing patterns to change. That's, mm -hmm. like I said, that's why BGP is there. It's a regular activity. Yeah. yeah. In fact, uh, you know, the alternative would be to 
declare maintenance periods on Saturday night or something. You know, no internet on yeah. 10 o'clock on Saturday. That would probably just wreck havoc. Yeah, I, I don't think Netflix <laughs> would like that. But. <laughs> that's a good point. I can think of a number of providers yeah. that wouldn't. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that, that's the thing. I mean, BGP yeah. is there for a reason. It's right. there because you dynamically want to route around problems. But if you get, give it the wrong information, then traffic is going to go to odd places. I mean, it, it seems to me that, that if you trust somebody to route your traffic, you end up trusting somebody to route your traffic. And if, if there was somebody you shouldn't have trusted to route your traffic, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm just, is there like a fix at the BGP level? I mean, this has been going on for a long time. It sort of seems like this is the way it yeah. works. This is sort of the best we got. Or are there ideas moving forward at this point. There, there are some things going on and they have to do with stuff like signing the, or, the origin of a route or signing the intermediate steps in a route. Mm -hmm. There are issues with it because signing takes time and as I was told once by a programmer at a major router <laughs> vendor, I can route them or I can count them, which do you want me to do? Well, I can route them or I can check the routes, which do you yeah. want me to do? If you're going to take time to sign things and to check the signatures, you're not, you're not doing the routing. Would it be something where you could just like check signatures on the advertisements of new routes, or is this really something that you would have to check for each packet as it went? No, you would, you would check it on the route advertisements, but the problem is if you look at a router, they have very high speed processing on the, on the line cards, which are actually taking the packets and routing them. But the route processors are comparatively wimpy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and now you're talking about additional functions for the route processor to do. And so you're hitting the router where it has the least amount of capacity right. in, in the route processing rather than in the line card. Yeah, uh, and if it, I mean, <coughs> to change it over time is a reasonable thing to do. Yeah. But to change it and then expect the existing infrastructure to take right. up that load. It's well, not as if you can just go run around and replace all the yeah. routers and everybody's plus, happy. Plus, if you're going to do signatures, you have to build the whole infrastructure of signatures and how do I check the signatures and what mm -hmm. do I use for certificates to make sure it's being signed by the, right, by the right entity and so forth. And that infrastructure has to be built up. And then you have to worry about that infrastructure <laughs> because there have been cases in the past yeah. of uh, the, the DigiNotar case comes to mind mm -hmm. where uh, you know, certificate authorities were compromised. And so it's not... You know, you still have to make sure that your signatures can be trusted right. and make sure that that's, that whole thing is not broken. Okay, and this is not as if we're looking at a situation where, you know, some kid decides to inject a new route into the network. This yeah. is a case where if somebody's going to do something malicious, it's a relatively sophisticated actor yeah. group, and they're going to be relatively highly motivated. They're taking a reasonable risk in doing that because it's going to end up eventually being globally visible. Yeah, so, yeah, it's they, gonna it's gonna be caught, right? I mean, yeah. if someone advertises a, a a bad route, eventually someone's gonna say, "Hey, that's my route. That shouldn't have been advertised." It's, At least it, that's what we think. It's usually caught, <laughs> although that that thing where the traffic detour, detoured yeah. through Iceland or Belarus, since it eventually got where it was supposed to go, that's a much harder thing to find than traffic yes. disappearing into a black hole because somebody advertised a route that they didn't really have, and you sent them the traffic and they didn't know what to do with it when they got right. it. Yeah. Technically a suspect if the point was yeah. to sniff the traffic. Yeah. 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 Well, and even people who aren't in that route are are technically because you could compromise a router in another country. Like I said, I mean, you don't know whether it was Iceland or Belarus that actually did this. You just know that's where the traffic was detouring through. Right. But somebody in, uh, you know, Zimbabwe could have hijacked a router right. in in Belarus and have it advertise a router uh, and have it ad advertise uh, right. a route and it would have nothing to do with Belarus. They just 
look bad because that's where all the traffic right. is being diverted. Well, and I think that kind of points to that on the internet, you're really dependent on the security of the infrastructure throughout the internet, not yeah. just well, security and proper ISP. operation. Right, for proper yeah. operation. Yeah. So I think it's, so go ahead, Matt. Well, I did want to say that it, you guys were saying that this sounds like it might be a better well-resourced or you know, very much like nation-state style attack. I'm not so sure that's the case, because if somebody can do this pretty simply, mm -hmm. compromising one or maybe a handful of, of ill-protected routers on the internet, what prevents somebody of lesser skill from doing it? Uh, it's not. What I, was, what, what, I, what I probably should have said is that some of these things, like signing the routes, they will help you get rid of the fat finger or the, the, the unskilled attackers. Right. But the nation states can probably get around it. Okay. Yeah, yeah I agree with that. So perhaps as a segue into the, you know, what can you really do about this to at least minimize the, the potential risk? And I think the, um, you know, it, as we were discussing a little bit earlier, I've always felt that the notions, you know, the security principles around confidentiality and integrity are always sort of a little bit at odds with availability. As you yeah. talked a little bit about adding security features on top of BGP, mm -hmm. it would protect against the fat finger kind of scenario, but it, it increases the risk that perhaps a signature isn't accepted and yeah. consequently the routes aren't accepted and it may make you know portions yeah. of the internet completely un, unreachable as a result of that. Mm -hmm. So that's a balance between do you really want to add better integrity or do you really want to add or, or you know do what you can to yeah. preserve the availability. And of course in that situation if you're moving to some sort of signed system there's a transition period, a mm -hmm. fairly long one, and there's a time where you have to say, where you know, each individual, each ISP has to decide, well, this route isn't signed. Do I trust it or not? At the beginning, you almost have to trust it because you right. there's not that much signing going on. Eventually, if a lot of the, you know, a lot of people are signing, maybe you start saying, you know, I'm not going to trust that signed route. If I have some other route, I'm going to use it, even though it may not seem to be as good. And mm -hmm. eventually, you may just stop trusting unsigned routes completely. Right. But at least you have the option. Yeah. yeah. Choices are good. <laughs> yeah. So as an end user, as a somebody that's subscribing to, to network services, I'm going to narrow this down to network services. What do, you, what do you recommend that folks do? Well, I mean, you can, obviously, if you use certificates of your own on your website, then even if somebody misdirects the traffic and it goes somewhere else, they don't have your certificate, so you shouldn't be able to. It shouldn't be identified as you when you actually get there. So at least so that's the sort of thing. Layer yeah. protection right. To so that sort so of thing. The, the sorts of things you do just to make sure you're talking to the right site would help protect you against route hijacking. At least it would help you protect you in the sense that people wouldn't think they were connected to you. They might not right. be able to get to you. They, right. they couldn't get to the legitimate site, but at least they wouldn't go to the illegitimate site and, and treat it as though it were you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and then it, if it, if the concern here is that stuff gets routed through an ISP that you don't trust, perhaps, mm -hmm. it, at least it provides the encryption to be able to protect yeah. against right. the, you know somebody yep. sniffing in on the traffic and, yep. and and seeing what you're doing. So there's a, a level of protection at that level at, at that yeah. uh, from that point of view. Well, what what are your thoughts about um, you know if you don't trust the internet, what about going to an ISP that you trust and subscribing to some private network services? Uh, you can do that. I mean, you know, uh, in, 
you know, VPNs are a big market. You know, we have a lot of customers on our AVPN service for just that reason. They mm -hmm. don't want that traffic cross crossing the internet. But if you're a large vendor and you want to talk to the maximum number of customers, you've pretty well got to be on the internet. You can't invite them all to come into your AV to, to your VPN in order to get to you. So you've got you, you at some point you just sort of have to for your public right. sites. You have to you have to be using the internet right yeah, now. That's absolutely true. So if you're if you're making something that's public publicly yeah. accessible, yeah, you have to go to the internet. Yeah. If you want to, if you're really just conducting business to perhaps third parties, uh, you know, somebody mm -hmm. that you're partnering with or some or within your own organization, you have the option of choosing an ISP and using a, yeah. a virtual private network yeah. solution. And that's what most major companies do. Certainly right. we do, and a lot of our major customers do. They have a VPN for their internal use, but still they have a public website and it's on the internet because that's how they talk to their, to their customers. Right. So for the public facing, does subscribing to multiple service providers help? Well, it may help a bit. I mean, it, it may help for some reliability reasons, but it won't keep your route from being hijacked. Um, well, necessarily keep the route from yeah. being hijacked, but it could potentially inject paths for more directions and make it a little yeah. more difficult to get that sort of segmented point of view, I think. Yeah. I'm, but I'm conjecturing a little bit here. But, but remember, I mean, it depends a bit what you're talking about. If you're talking about, you know, you're in the U.S., for instance, there are a number of major carriers that you can sign up with for your mm -hmm. Internet service. But are you going to sign up with a carrier from... Hong Kong because you want to make sure that customers in that part of the world get to you directly? Or are you going to sign up with a carrier from uh, you know, Germany or England or France? Um, right. Or are you kind of leaving that to your internet provider to, to deal with the internet and make sure that you can be reached from all over the world? Right. Um, yeah. you know, if, if you're worried enough about this and you're a big enough company, you might start investing in extension cords to, uh, to places like Hong Kong and, and uh, Germany and, uh, and England and France. Yeah. But, um, you know, um, that's not practical for, for, for a, a lot, lot of, of, cases, uh, cus not. of customers, you know, me medium to small companies. It's not practical at all. All right. Good point. All right. Joshua, did you have another comment? No, I mean, I was just trying to think of solutions, but you know, I, I don't think perhaps this is the place to solve BGP's problems. But, but very interesting. Encryption always, I mean, for, for a for an end user, I don't think there should be anything that that's sent unencrypted, and 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 obviously, uh, you know, I mean, we're we're still going to be leaking privacy information where where you connect to maybe can be still sniffed, but as long as everything's encrypted well, um, I you know, it's sort of what you have to do. Yeah, good point. Yeah. You know, we've talked it, we've talked mostly in the context of websites, so that would be typically HTTPS. But you know, uh, like if you're trying to do point-to-point -point connections, you might want to use IPsec. If you're mm -hmm. trying to, you know, access something in a more traditional sense, SSH is available. Yeah. And uh, if you're creating your own application, you know, the SSL uh, library helps to build those applications. Although you have to be careful because you can really still yeah. kind of goof it up. And I will raise one other small concern there. Uh, we're legal. Um, we're there, legal. Are, there are places that put uh, restrictions on encryption. Uh, like, you know, I, I did mention I deal with our worldwide network, and, yeah. and we run across those. And, you know, I have friends in legal who help me, who help me out with what's legal in some places and might not be legal all over the place. That's correct. So there's a process that you need to go through for some countries to be able to import yeah. or export encryption tools. Yeah. I think it's usually yeah. based on the software or the appliance that supports that software. Right. 
and to be allowed to use that in the country. And sometimes they actually require that you provide keys and things like that. Yeah. So it, uh, it depends on the country you're operating in. I think that's specifically the countries you're operating in, not necessarily what it might transit across. Right. right? It usually isn't transit. Right. Yeah. All right. Good deal. I, I, well, thanks for bringing this subject to us because I think sure. this is one that's kind of been hanging around. We haven't really talked about this at all, but it's uh, certainly one that comes up from time to time. So uh, yeah. either we'll have you back the next time it comes up, which okay. I know we'll come back, <laughs> or, uh, or, or maybe we'll take some segments from this discussion <laughs> if you're not available. But okay. we certainly welcome you anytime you'd like to, to join us. And, uh, you know, we've been talking about websites here. I thought we'd segment in just a little bit of a, a, a permutation of that. Um, five signs your your web application has been hacked. You know there have been a lot of uh, you know stories in the news about websites being hacked for uh, usually to steal customer information. You know to try to get uh, user account information, passwords, and uh, that becomes uh, sort of its uh, its own little thing. This is an article or a blog that was posted in uh, InfoWorld originally, and. Um, so let's just go walk through these a bit. You know, first of all, your application is not doing what it's designed to do. Okay. Matt, I think you have the sort I, of the obvious statement about that. I think if you if if you know exactly how your application behaves, this becomes very easy. If you yeah. don't, it becomes very hard. I mean, this is sort of the sort of the idea of what a WAF would be doing. If you right. understand the application, you can sort of code that behavior into the WAF and say these actions are legit, these actions are not. A, a WAF being a web, a web application, application firewall. That is, you know, sort of that next, you know, something that kind of understands web applications. Mm -hmm would have a little bit of an idea of what it looks like if there's a cross-site scripting mm -hmm. uh, vulnerability associated with it or, or, or SQL, SQL injection type activity taking place and perhaps be able to kind of get in the middle of that and block it. Now when we talk about machine learning, because like there's a lot of investigation in machine learning stuff, um, uh, uh, stuff like um, you, you get lots of, uh, uh, you, you get a, a signal that, that says, hey, something's wrong. But it can't tell you at all what's wrong. It's like, yeah. So, you know, I was just thinking, as you said, yeah, if you really understand your application really well, then, yeah, you can tell when it's messing up. But the machine learning is a little bit different. It's like, well, yeah, we know something's messed up, but we don't understand anything about what's going on at all. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, that, that's definitely got its value. It'll, it'll alert you with to things that are different. Uh, mm -hmm. But different doesn't necessarily mean bad, and I feel like there there'll still be some false positives you'll have to dig through. That's yeah. probably true for the WAF as well. But you know, of course, there are also the blatantly obvious cases. If if somebody defaces your website, if you wake up one morning <laughs> and your website says "Greetings from Anonymous" across it, yeah. it's fairly obvious that there's something wrong. Yeah, well, and good point. That and has been uh, you know that has been done in in many cases. It's, yeah, that's absolutely yeah. defacement. Is uh, I mean that was yeah. sort of the original website hack. You, yeah, you know. To, to face it, because it really didn't start out that there was a lot of valuable information. That they, the, that was about the extent of what you could do. You know, I think it's a very good point because it it points out that you really have to kind of know at least a little bit about the application and be and be able to recognize when something like that has changed. So, okay. So the next one is you find unexpected log messages. I kind of love this one because it kind of suggests not only that you collect your log messages, but you actually have to look at them. And yeah. you know, for a large website, this could be tricky. Oh yeah. Because you may have millions of logs being generated actually per minute and it's not something you can just take a look at. So I think this is Josh where that machine learning could really 
again, how, how. yeah, machine learning. I mean, we're, there's a lot of things that it's like big data. And, you know, even though we know we have good people, we're worried that we're missing some, we're missing that needle in the haystack. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, you, you, machine learning. Yeah. You, you can start at least looking for the, the obvious weirdness. Things like 404 errors. If someone's generating a ton of different errors, like this page is not found from a single IP address, and you take a look at that, sometimes you'll find that they're scanning for popular vulnerabilities in the application. Mm -hmm. They're hitting the same app looking for all of them, and they'll generate a whole bunch of misses before they find a hit. A very good point. So that, that doesn't really require sophisticated in al algorithms. It's really just measure how many errors you have relative to the number of visitors. And it, it, I mean, you probably want to know that anyway. If something broke, that's true. That's <laughs> you encountered true. a bug or a crash for some reason, you know, those errors are going to start showing up. It might be helpful to, to find those out as soon as possible. It's a good point. Okay, you find new processes, users, or jobs. <laughs> We're chuckling among ourselves, but yet again, it, it's, uh, it's something you actually have to be looking for. That is to have some idea, and really you should have a relatively minimum number of users on, I guess this could be looked at two ways though. I, I tend to be assuming in terms of administrative users, ones that have accounts on the system itself, which is, you want to be paying attention to and should be relatively few. I guess, you know, perhaps there are certain types of hacks that would inject new, you know, sort of customer users accounts on the, onto the, uh, the service as well. So perhaps they're a little more tricky to figure out. Let's start with the basics and track the administrators of the system, right? But, but new, new Certainly every time my son uses my computer, I'll look at the process list because he goes to this, he just downloads stuff and plays the games. He doesn't care what he's installing. And so like, I'll go through the process list and say, yeah, this shouldn't be running this. What is this? You know, that, yeah. So I think definitely make sure there's no jobs or tasks running that shouldn't be. Yeah. But, but how many people log all their processes and then, as Brian said before, look at the logs? Yeah. Well, this is well, not even me, right? But but I, I at least can identify certain things I know shouldn't be running. Right. Yeah. Yeah, this is true. And, you know, um, sometimes it's to, you, even just the pattern of the naming conventions and the processes can be a, a, a little bit of a cue. Um, I think processes, being able to look at the processes they expect is probably easier to eyeball than trying to review the activity logs. So uh, this is one, I mean, I'm sure there are tools that could be used to try to track, you know, new processes and try to alert to some things like that. That might be a little more subtle to, uh, to actually detect automatically, maybe a little easier to review by hand. But if you're coming in reviewing by hand, the best way to sort is by how long each process has been running. Very good point. Assuming that you haven't rebooted it and you were compromised when you rebooted, but you know, if the thing's been up for seven years and you've got something that's been running for three days, mm -hmm. you might wanna look at the three days one first. Yep. Yeah, except the processes are created and go away fairly often in, in a lot of systems. So I'm not sure that's going to really help in, in, in all cases. Not in all cases. I'd, not in all. You know, what not do all. you have that's been running for seven years? That's what I want to know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm interested. I, I want to know. I, I'm impressed with that uptime. Uh, yeah. I've seen some stuff. I've seen some stuff. I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Okay, files have changed. You know, there are some tools that help to automate this kind of activity to try to identify, you know, configuration files or even executables that have been modified or changed. I, you know, we'd also want to look for new files. And, uh, you know, sometimes there would be indication that they may be in some obscure place, too. So it's, uh, it's a little bit tricky to figure out without some automation around that. 
but you know, if uh, if a tool's been has been installed, you're going to tend to have files that are showing up to uh, be able to identify these things. Again, naming conventions might be able to help identify these. If you wanted to go the preventative route, you should lock down all the different folders that any user could even write to in the first place. That's so if they point. can't write, they can't install. I mean, they could do something in memory, I suppose, but it mm -hmm. does. It helps. Yeah, good point. Okay, and last but not least here, you get warnings. Is if <laughs> you know, I, one, of my, one of my pet peeves in some website is to go to a website and have no way to contact the website owners. Mm -hmm. And I think every website should have a way, you know, how do you contact us? Or, and I'm sure that, you know, they're all, anybody that's running a website is like, oh, no, I don't want all that. But it's, it's at least an indicator you get, can get from outside. But I guess uh, in, in the uh, interest of cognizance of your website, there are others that, you know, Google, for example, that is rating the security websites. And if you see your rating sort of going down the tubes, you know, obviously that's not good for business, but it also may be an indication that you need to take a look at your web application and see if there has been at least some abuse of it, if not, um, you know, it, it actually being hacked. So, what, I, Do you know anything about the, the Google algorithms? Like, because I was actually, I did a search for, it was just some commerce site. I, I was getting something for my wife and, uh, and Google said, this site appears to be hacked. And I was like, oh, interesting, Google. Thank you very much. And I was, do, you, do you have any insight what they're looking for there? <laughs> why, why they thought that site was hacked? I mean, I could see if it was a simple defacement, you know, Google might be able to tell, but you know, what... Right. What other things could could Google be doing that they would know that that site might be hacked? Mm -hmm. Well, good point. And you know, one of the other things which uh, it, you kind of inspired a thought here: pay attention to the abuse messages that might be coming in. So, if there's an IP address associated with the site, invariably there would be. Uh, there's generally a abuse contact associated with that. You know, a lot of times those go to perhaps a separate organization. You want to make sure you know who those people are so that they know to siphon any messages associated with your site to you and uh, would be able to respond to that. So that'd be another means to learn about it. I'm just thinking about Josh's uh, comment about how, how is Google doing any if detection. If I were a search engine, which Google is, and I were indexing all the pages I could possibly find on sites, I'd be looking for the common um, patterns of infection, you know, mm -hmm. certain code comments that show up, or maybe the existence of URL patterns that were known to be part of exploit kits or things like that. Oh, yeah, or files that, yeah. files that got dropped and all of a sudden they're showing up on that site. Yeah, good point. Excellent point. Yep. So some of those things do show up in the uh, search index. So anyway, five, uh, five tips to help identify whether your web application has been hacked. And uh, I guess if you're operating a website or even any application for that matter, I think a lot of those will be applicable to, uh, to you. So let's go back to you, Matt. We'll talk a little bit about, uh, I guess, um, this ransomware thing has been growing. Mm -hmm. um, but it looks like some dampers are really being put in place. I, I expected it actually get worse this year. And uh, I'm happy to report that it doesn't seem to be getting terribly worse. So uh, perhaps you have an explanation for part of it. So we have a, a small victory uh, for the, the forces of good, I believe. Um, so uh, Kaspersky and the Dutch uh, police have put out uh, a statement saying that there are two ransomware families, uh, CoinVault and BitCryptor, and both of them have been basically taken out of commission and the authors have been arrested. Great. One of the best things about takedowns is when they include actual physical arrests in the real world. Mm -hmm. um, because otherwise the, the attackers can really just rebuild uh, and be back doing it a month later. 
Um, the best part, I think, is that uh, Kaspersky has put up a website allowing anybody who has had their files encrypted by either of these families to download a tool and use it to decrypt all of their files. So no ransom needs to be paid and you're, you're good to go again. So this, this has been happening with a couple different families. There's been different approaches to how it's mm -hmm. been done in the past. Uh, some have like, you know, you email them something, they'll email you back your key. In mm -hmm. this case, it's a tool. Uh, but I think this is great. Uh, yeah. I'm very excited. Yeah, it's good news. Now, do all these ransomware uh, programs basically use Bitcoin then? Uh, so Bitcoin is usually the preferred method of payment for ransomware. Uh, that's that's what different. I meant for, for payment. I mean, are, have there been any instances of ransomware that like actually like, you know, meet me at the corner of the park and at 12 midnight and I'll give you the key or, or is it really just Bitcoin? I wouldn't say it's really just Bitcoin. There are some other pseudo anonymous ways of paying. Some of the ransomware will require you to go out and buy like a cash card or something like Green Dot, I think is one of the popular mm. ones. And there are things you can buy at a corner store that have the same kind of pseudo anonymous way of paying. Um, but I've never heard of anybody going out and doing it in the park in the middle of the night. Probably because it doesn't <laughs> I, scale very well. I, I unless so. you're a you know crypto ransomware guy who's attacking nobody but people who live in New York City, and you want to meet in Central Park and exchange you know keys. The old scale. school mafia crypto ransom guys. Yes, <laughs> right, yeah. those would be the guys doing that, right? Yeah, but, so true. But if we're ta talking about ransomware. I mean, it was. A, not as happy article that I saw this week about the FBI recommending that in some cases you should pay the ransom. <laughs> yeah, actually, good point. You know, I'm glad you brought this up because we we saw that, and um, I, my impression is I don't think that was an official position. Mm -hmm. I think it was a person that was doing a presentation, expressed his position, yeah. and perhaps was taken a little bit out of. That context. goes against every Hollywood movie I've ever seen. <laughs> that can't be an official. No, that that can't be. <laughs> but you're saying that individuals in a corporation don't always represent the opinions of the corporation? Uh, the opinions uh, expressed on ThreatTrack are the opinions of the folks <laughs> right, only yes. on ThreatTrack. <laughs> just want to make that clear. <laughs> yeah, so I'm glad you brought that up because, I, again, I haven't seen anything, you know, for that really attempting to change that point. But yeah. uh, I, I believe that that was an uh, individual presenting at a conference. I think yeah. he expressed an opinion. And, uh, you know, in some situations, in fact, that was actually one of the things out in the press over the summer is that some police departments were yeah. paying the ransom, which was kind of like, really? Yeah. Is that, I mean, is that the message you want to get out? But I think that's one of the things that in some cases the media has latched onto. It's like, look at this dichotomy that we've run into. Here. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, I don't think that's our recommendation to, uh, to yeah. pay the ransom. In fact, by, by all means, what we recommend is plan for it, get backups in place, be prepared for recovering from an incident like this, and then do your best to prevent it as well so that uh, for the most part, you, you will be relatively impervious and won't be having to debate whether you pay the ransom or not. Yeah. Well, you should be doing this anyway in case a hard drive fails oh, yeah. or some other catastrophe yep. occurs. I mean, don't just think that it's the only response, we're doing it because you might get hacked. Do it because yeah. you might lose your data for any number of reasons. Yeah, it's very, it, it, very good point. There, there are some subtleties in this too, though. You have to actually take a little more effort to protect against the ransomware than just a backup. So, for yeah. example, if you're just mirroring to a drive, right. it's going to go find that drive and encrypt yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And <laughs> so make sure you have offline backups for this. Yeah. yeah, this is a case where you have to be a little more careful. But 
thank you for bringing that because that's uh, again, uh, Victory. You mentioned that it's it's um, it deters those that get arrested, but I think it creates a deterrent for those that are considering getting into it as well. So that's a very positive effect in my in my opinion. That is to uh, to create greater deterrence. So let's take a little bit of a look at the internet weather for the week, and we're going to go into this uh, starting with a uh, report from Akamai. You know, they do a regular report called the State of the Internet. And in their latest report, they talked about three new DDoS or reflective denial of service attack vectors. Now, reflective denial of service attacks are basically where, you know, the attackers are looking for services on the internet that they can reflect. They send spoof packets to the source address would be the target of the attack. And they can send these spoof source packets to these services. And generally the services respond with hopefully from the attacker's point of view, hopefully a larger response that amplifies that attack. So sometimes you, these are referred to as amplification attacks. Uh, I think more and more they're getting to the point where, we'll call it in a, in a state of desperation, looking for anything that will reflect as a mechanism, not necessarily for the uh, maximum amplification. Uh, that's still an advantage from the attacker's point of view because it helps to anonymize where the attack is actually coming from is from a victim's point of view, they see these services out on the internet that are just sending packets to them, but in reality, there's some botnet or something behind that that's actually originating the packet. So it protects the attacker's infrastructure, which is not necessarily a good thing. But getting back to the point here, in this report, Akamai reported on three new attack vectors. First one being port 111 UDP, that's a remote procedure call. Actually, we had reported on this in August, and I think actually Akamai had seen this around the same time frame, somewhere around mid-August, and uh, showed some uh, evidence of that activity. But uh, we had reported on this on Threat Track on August 18th, and in the context of probes being reported on that port 111, as well as reflective denial service attack activity. The next one is port 137 UDP. This is NetBIOS name server. I think this is pretty much depreciated in Windows today. I don't think it really is uh, used significantly, but I, I could be not exactly right about that. In any case, we reported probes on that on, the, uh, on a previous program on October 20th. I didn't really recognize, it was actually in our top 10 uh, most probe ports, and I didn't really recognize it as potentially related to reflective denial service attacks, but uh, nevertheless, it apparently was. And then uh, a new one, port 5309 UDP, this is uh, Sentinel License Manager. I think that's an IBM product. I think they were acquired by M IBM, but nevertheless, probes were reported on ThreatTrack on August 25th. Uh, again, we didn't really recognize that as being related to reflective denial of service attacks, but uh, Akamai did um, sort of report it in that context. So putting these three ports together, uh, three protocols together, what we have here is a aggregated graph showing that activity. And as you can see, it really kind of took off. And we see some spikes of activity in particular. This was associated with RPC back in mid-August sort of starting to pop up on the order of about 500 megabits per second. This is averaged over across an hour, so the attack you know, could have spiked for a shorter period of time at a higher level, but averaged across the hour in the order of about 500 megabits. And then uh, later on, we start to see port 137 showing up more significantly in some larger attacks uh, using uh, port 111. We're not really seeing anything significant related to port 5309 UDP at this point. So there was a little spike that occurred 
actually not little at all, about one gigabit per second, but it's not as if this is happening very frequently. Perhaps there aren't that many servers that are exposed uh, showing this license manager. So nevertheless, uh, these are ones that we're keeping an eye on. Now, I wanted to put this in the context with the aggregate of events that we're seeing related to reflective denial of service attacks. So here's the aggregate view incorporating all of the ports so far, which is uh, 5093, uh, 137, 161, that's a simple network management protocol, 111, which we just talked about, RPC, 19, character generator, port 520, which is RIP, that's uh, routing very old routing. Yeah, it's a very old <laughs> routing protocol. I think it was one of the original ones. Yeah. And it's very it's designed for very small networks. Yeah, and it does uh, not work at all in large networks. <laughs> right. Uh, DNS is often used in reflective attacks. So this is uh, port 53 UDP, 1900 UDP, which is uh, SSDP, Simple Service Discovery Protocol. Port zero, which in some of these cases they can create fragmented packets, so that shows up as uh, port zero in this data, and last but not least, port 123, which is network time protocol. So in aggregate here, you can kind of see a color theme that is sort of the blues and the reds and the, the purples here are the majority of the stuff, and that would be NTP, the fragmented packets, 1900 UDP, and port 53. They're really the predominant sources of the attack activity. But you can see if you really squint that there's kind of uh, some emerging activity down in the bottom right here. So what I'm gonna do is blow up that portion of the screen and you can see it a little bit better. You can see sort of the variety of uh, activities that are taking place here. I think this is actually the result of some reactive measures that are being taken to lock down some of these ports so that they can't be used as, uh, for attacks as easily. I've seen some evidence, and perhaps we'll report on it next week, where it looks like perhaps there's more attack activities reverting to using DNS, whereas it, they'd seem to relax that a little bit. And then we're seeing a lot more experimentation around other ports that are uh, perhaps contributing to this in, in some sense. So, you know, I, I guess on one side, we're not really seeing any decrease in activity on the, and the attacks. They seem to be getting a little bit bigger in aggregate. Um, but uh, nevertheless, uh, we continue to try to do some things to, uh, to lock this down a little bit better. Next item here is scan sources on port 502 TCB. This is Modbus. This is generally associated with uh, industrial control systems. And uh, what we're really reporting here, again, is the number of sources that are doing the scanning activity. There was some very regular automated activity we've been seeing in the past that seems to have relaxed a little bit. There's still some of that probing activity. So as you see here, I've made a note here that most probes are actually from a US university that aren't using a lot of addresses, but they're probing and then uh, basically using that information to you know, basically assess vulnerabilities. That one is more innocuous. What we're seeing here is actually a number of addresses in the hundreds being used from actually a variety of places in China that are, uh, are perhaps, I would say, a little more sinister in, in their intentions. So, although that's speculation on my part. Nevertheless, we're showing about 60 days worth of data and over the last couple of weeks here, we've seen a lot more of this, you know, multiple uh, addresses doing sort of low and slow scanning of this uh, particular port. Looking at the top 10 most probe ports at the top of the list, port 23, no surprise there, followed by 1900 UDP. We talked a little bit about SSDP and its, uh, its activity and reflective denial of service attacks that continues to exist. 443 TCP, that's, uh, they'll be probing around looking for web application perhaps to find ways that, to hack those websites. So make sure you're paying attention to what's going on there. Uh, and then followed by port 53 UDP. This one has jumped up a little bit. 
this is one of the uh, things that's contributed to my belief that uh, perhaps some of the reflective denial service attack activity is reverting back to port 53. You know, in this probing activity, this, uh, you know, this scanning activity that we're detecting here, um, if we get on the request side of the activity, it appears like scanning activity in our data. So uh, that would be one of the reasons that could move up on this uh, on the list here. Followed by port 22 TCP SSH, uh, perhaps looking for uh, weak passwords for accessing the systems. We had talked last week about some um, home routers that have SSH exposed to the internet and uh, are potentially subject to a uh, password guessing attack. Port 80 TCP, again, looking for those websites. 445 TCP, yes, there are still um, uh, attacks against uh, Windows. or A lot of times these are brute force password guessing attacks as well. Followed by port 21 TCP, FTP, and then uh, finally 993 TCP. That activity is predominantly, I think, research-oriented. Uh, if I remember correctly, that's um, IMAP over, over TLS. TLS. So um, in any case, uh, encrypted access to email. And uh, I think that's predominantly research-oriented. Uh, taking a little closer look at the scan probes on 1900 EDP, we're looking at the last 30 days. These are generally requests associated with denial of service attacks, reflective denial of service attacks. There may be probing looking for those responding servers, but I only wanted to point out that over the last couple of weeks here that we've had sort of a surge in that activity taking place. Most of the addresses associated with this are Chinese, so either perhaps probing to find those servers or actually perhaps targets of those attacks. Looking at the top 10 most sources doing the probing, Port 23 has inched, even though it's already half of the sources, it's inched up a little bit here. So we're going to take a little bit of a closer look at that, followed by 445 TCP, 22 TCP, which we already talked about, and then we have some peer-to-peer uh, -peer type activity following that. So looking at the scan sources on port 23 TCP, I see Matt over here is kind of shaking his head. Looking at the last 90 days, we see it continuing to inch upward here. Again, this is... Um, particular types of devices that are connected to the internet that have Telnet exposed. Telnet should not be exposed to the internet. I think we all agree on that, but for some reason it's still happening. So nevertheless, uh, these devices are out there. I recommend any device you have, check it to see if it has Telnet exposed and if it has it, uh, take it back to the store. <laughs> <laughs> okay, in closing, that's our show for today. And I'd like to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email at attthreattrack at list.att.com. You can find ATT Threat Track on the ATT Tech Channel. It's uh, also available on YouTube and on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Security. So I'd like to thank you, Rick. Special <laughs> privilege having you with us today. Uh, Josh, thank you for joining us as well. And I look forward to having you back soon. I understand you had sort of an article prepared for today, but in the time, I think we're going to uh, put that in another program. You're going to join us a little later. Is that correct? Yeah, I got. I I, I like just being here, but yeah, yeah. I'll, <laughs> I think I'm coming back in December, and we'll talk about something then as well. So. Okay. You get. Would you like to give us a little preview? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Very good. And uh, thank you, Matt, for joining. Anytime. I'm Brian Rexer. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.